Last week, Bishop Caggiano started giving us a little bit of the early history of the papacy in the Catholic Church. Today, we are joined by a real expert in church history. Bishop Caggiano is going to talk to H.W. Crocker. He is the author of a book called Triumph, which is a 2,000-year history of the Catholic Church. This is a really fun and informative conversation. So keep your radio right here on 1350 AM and 103.9 FM, or keep us on the phone with the Veritas mobile app. The app is at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, and at veritascatholic.com. If you're listening on the app and you enjoy Let Me Be Frank, you can help us out by going to your favorite podcast platform and giving us a five-star rating. And Let Me Be Frank, as you know, is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad, the impact is meaningful. For more information, you can visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure as always to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, good morning to you, my friend. Hello, and, Excellency. And as we hinted last time we taped, we're going to continue a conversation about history and the history of the church, but now we have a real expert versus what I was trying to do last week. So I think this, is, <laughs> this is a major step forward. So I'll leave you for the introduction. Yeah, we have the guy who wrote the book. <laughs> Literally. Literally. <laughs> so I'm very pleased to uh, introduce H.W. Crocker III. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. H.W. is the, yes, H.W. is the vice president and executive editor of Regnery Publishing. He's a former speechwriter for Governor Pete Wilson of California. You may have seen uh, his writing in a number of different outlets, including the National Review, the American Spectator, the Washington Times, and the National Catholic Register. H.W. has written at least half a dozen books, including the best-selling Robert E. Lee on Leadership and The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Civil War, uh, Armstrong, Armstrong Rides Again, and Armstrong and the Mexican Mystery, as well as the award-winning novel, The Old Limey. But H.W. joins us today to talk about his book, Triumph, his rollicking single-volume history of 2,000 years of the Catholic Church. H.W., thank you so much for being here. My great pleasure. Yes, H.W., thank you. Thank you, because um, you can help give us a perspective on the importance of the history of the church that I think many Catholics don't appreciate, right, or have not had the opportunity really to learn. But as I, I said before we actually began the taping, tell us about your own personal journey of faith. How did, how did you get to where you were? Well, are that's part of the story of the book, actually, because I'm a convert, um, and I was brought up in Southern California, in San Diego, which especially back then was a Navy Marine Corps town. My dad had been in the Marine Corps. Um, but it was largely a secular upbringing. My mother was Episcopalian. I was baptized and confirmed in the Episcopal Church. But as of many Episcopalians, that was an agnostic upbringing. So, <laughs> I mean, we, we went to church largely to play, play softball. Um, and uh, so I was kind of like an agnostic slash skeptic for the first couple decades of my life. But um, partly I was always interested in history and the church obviously plays a huge role in history. And partly mm -hmm. 
I, I fear unlike maybe young people today, I thought the truth mattered. And I wanted to know what the truth was. And I wasn't going to accept, I guess, simplistic explanations that I had for a long while accepted. Well, you know, Darwin explains mm -hmm. everything or, or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Because I became skeptical of all these things the more I looked at them. And um, by the time I turned 30 or so, I was reading pretty deeply into especially the the english speaking tradition i lived in england for a while as well and so i, I read everything by evelyn wall i read a lot of graham green i read chesterton um i read cardinal newman who made a huge impact on me mm -hmm. and i remember when i was working for the governor actually i on my first date with a woman who became my wife i i said i'm reading this great book it's called the apologia pro vita sua <laughs> <laughs> oh, that must have turned your head. <laughs> well, ironically enough, yeah, it, it, that worked because I didn't know this at the time, but she was a cradle Catholic. And she was like, oh my gosh, who's this, who's this young man? <laughs> um, but being the sort of, I don't know, literary sort of person I was at the time, um, I could have debated this for a lot longer than I did. But my wife, uh, women strikes me are often more practical than men. And she, she, she popped this question, which is, so are you going to convert or aren't you? And I thought, yeah, what am I waiting for? So I ended up converting. Um, and one of the things that I don't think it troubled me, but I thought was missing during my conversion was I really wanted to read an affirmative, accessible history of the church. Mm -hmm. It struck me that of those mm -hmm. histories that I had read, many were sort of dusty and dry and hard to get into and full of these very abstract theological controversies, or they were apologetics in the wrong sense. They were kind of like, oh, well, the church has had so many flaws, but uh, I thought, well, yeah, sure, it has flaws, but that's, that's kind of missing the point. <laughs> um, and so I ended up sitting down, finally, and writing this book, which I now think of as <laughs> sort of a... I mean, this, I'll, I'll explain what I mean by this. It was sort of an adolescent boy's view of the Catholic Church. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that it's meant to be exciting, I mean, sort of stirring, and uh, a great drama. And it's full of, unlike a lot of Catholic histories, I think for good or for ill, it's full of you know, the clash of swords and crusaders and conquistadors. And it doesn't, it doesn't apologize to those people. It kind of relishes them. Um, mm -hmm. And the book, the book actually came out, roughly speaking, 20 years ago. Um, but it's coming out again now. It's being reissued uh, in October of 2023, um, updated. So I've added a little bit uh, more to, to finish off. John Paul II was still alive when the book came out the first time. Um, so I've added a little bit on, on that and on uh, Benedict, of course, and on Pope Francis. But the bulk of the book is a, an affirmative history of the Catholic Church, which doesn't gloss over the things that people most want to talk about. I found that people, I was surprised when I talked about this book 20 years ago. I actually, I actually haven't talked about it in a long time now because it's been 20 years. But I was always kind of taken aback that what the thing, the question I got asked most often was, tell us about the Inquisition. <laughs> mm -hmm. I never thought the Inquisition was was the was the biggest most important thing, but um, 
but it, it covers that. It, cover, it covers all the, the major controversies. And it, mm -hmm. it uses, I think, it, well, to my mind, interestingly, um, a lot of mainstream, what we call, might call mainstream liberal, easily accessible sources, like things like Will Durant's History of Civilization, if, you, if anyone is familiar with that, which is popular you know, several decades ago. But, and the, the, I did that for a reason. I wanted to point out that real history, the history that historians, before they became so um, propagandists, is what many of them are now, but uh, is that, uh, and actually many were in the past as well, as I point out in the book, but, but the mainstream historians, if read properly, actually affirm the church. And I, I, I mm -hmm. found this in sort of, in more than just historical aspects, um, I mean, sort of speaking very specifically about history of the last, say, 2,000 years. I used to be really interested for a while in what, um, in the sort of study of animal behavior and how it ties into human behavior. There was a fellow named Robert Ardrey, who was a Darwinist. This is back around 1960. And he wrote several, at the time, best-selling books called African Genesis, and uh, the territorial imperative, the social contract. And there was one other, I think it was called the hunting hypothesis. And he's probably most famous to most people. If they remember the opening of 2001, The Space Odyssey, which I've not seen since I was a boy, but I think there's an opening where these apes are like taking these, these blocks of wood, or these sticks, and hitting each other over the head with them. Well, part of his theory was that man became a weapon manipulator. Be, um, in that way. That, that's actually lifted right out of Robert Ardrey. That's a part of man's evolution. So this is a very Darwinistic view of man in these four books, which I found fascinating. But what I also found fascinating was that if you read him through the eyes of faith, you could easily say, really what you're, you're writing is a, is a history of man that parallels the idea of original sin. And mm -hmm. it, this is something that's, that, has, that has long struck me is that a lot of things that people think um, contradict the faith, looked at historically, or looked at through the eyes of faith, actually affirm the faith. When people talk about the mm -hmm. problem of evil, for instance. Well, no, the, the faith explains the problem of evil. Um, right. And so on and so forth. Right. I don't want to go on and on and on. But I, I, you know, as, as with many people, for me, it was largely my conversion, an intellectual exercise. It was largely an historical exercise, thinking this is historically mm -hmm. true. I mean, this is something else. I was very interested for a while in the, what they call the search for the historical Jesus. Oh, yeah, in scripture. And one Absolutely. of the things that struck mm -hmm. me in reading through the, the debates in the, in the search for historic, the historical Jesus was how the New Testament documents or New Testament history was treated so radically different from other aspects of history. I mean, if you, if you were to treat the New Testament documents as you would treat any other historical documents of that period, you would think, wow, these things are really well attested, right. very valuable, and blah, blah, blah. And, and, but they aren't. They, they, most people are most... Many scholars, really most, many scholars, and certainly I think many uh, laymen treat them very differently and much more skeptically. Mm -hmm. 
And a skeptic, mm -hmm. you know, skepticism is not entirely bad, but skepticism can go to a fault. And one other thing that struck me is when you're, well, I'll give you a hard, a hard example. If you're trying to talk about the resurrection, fantastic event viewed historically, but all of the non-Christian explanations for the resurrection are essentially conspiracy theories. <laughs> and I don't, it strikes me as absurd that a conspiracy theory any of these conspiracy theories, oh, he fainted on the cross, oh, they hid the body, or whatever, um, or there was a mass delusion. All these conspiracy theories are far less believable by any rational, skeptical even, mm -hmm. um, viewpoint than the Christian explanation, which actually fits the evidence we have. Exactly so. See, it, it, right. I think that's an excellent point. And it raises what we've, as Steve and I have been talking about over the last few years, was when we talk about the church, right, we talk about a human and divine reality. And the secular culture, not accepting the divine reality, that aspect of the church, looks at its humanity and some of the foibles that have happened, some of the sins of its members, to discredit the whole reality of the church. But in fact, what you're suggesting is when you see it through the eyes of faith, you see it through a more complete prism not ignoring the humanity of the, its members, but there's a divinity to the actual body of Christ. There's a divine aspect that humanity does not in its sum total explain completely. It doesn't. And I find it fascinating that your conversion was really basically an intellectual. It started with the intellectual curiosity because a lot of prominent individuals have come to faith in the Catholic Church to either a discovery of its history or a discovery of aspects of its history, like the fathers of the church and their writings have brought many people to faith. Right. So history is an important tool that we, we live in a world that doesn't value history. Now, is that a fair statement for me to say? We live in a world that does not value history? Absolutely. We've, over the last couple decades, especially over the last, what, uh, five, six years, we've seen our society literally at war with history, tearing down statues um, and rewriting history and, yes, trying to abolish it. And it's, it's, a, it's almost like a, another version of the French Revolution. Let's start again from year zero, like now, um, mm -hmm. which I think mm -hmm. is, is absurd. Um, and we were talking all, you know, before the interview actually started about the two things that, um, that, ha that in my 60 plus years on this earth <laughs> have shocked me the most. And the most obvious one is the whole transgender business. But the other is the way we look at history. Um, I've written a lot about the Civil War too. That strikes me as the most shocking thing, our changing views of the Civil War, um, which, I mean, you don't have to go back very far. You can go back to any popular Western. I mean, it used to be the view of the Civil War was that was like the American Iliad. Right? It was noble Greeks versus noble Romans. And people who were alive at the time, I mean, President McKinley, who served as a Union officer in the Civil War, he's the one who commissioned the Confederate Memorial at Arlington Cemetery, <laughs> which is now in threat of being removed at the end of this year. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, who was the son of a Southern mother and a father who was old enough to fight the Civil War, but did not gave several speeches where he said, you know, we can take pride in, as Americans, we can take pride in the boys who wore the blue and fought, after, fought under Grant and 
the boys who wore gray and fought under Lee. And this, this view was a, a con consensus view held again by liberal mainstream historians up through most of the 20th century. You can go look at things like mm -hmm. Ken Burns's PBS uh, documentary, The Civil War, it was really popular in the 1990s. You can look at, at big historians like Henry Steele Cominger or uh, Samuel Elliott Morrison, uh, Harvard Yeoman, or Har Harvard man in, in Morrison's case and the New York Chicago man in Cominger's case, praising <laughs> the, praising men like Lee and Stonewall Jackson. As, wow, weren't they dashing? Wow, weren't they the great underdogs? Weren't right. they, weren't they right. great Christians? Right. Um, and this sort of didn't change may, until the 21st may, century. Yeah, may may interrupt just for this point. I think if I'm if I'm reading the dynamics correctly in the contemporary world, there there is there are two impulses. The first is we learn from history, we learn from the examples of the past, because please God, society is always becoming more please God, more enlightened, more just, right? And therefore. Uh, we as a society, or particularly as a church, we look at our own history. There was a time of an inquisition. Well, there certainly is not one now, but we have a different way of dealing with theological error that we did four or 500 years ago, right? Or people are not necessarily teaching the faith correctly, right? So it's the same thing, in, I would think, in civil society that we, we learn. The, so we're not glorifying the mistakes of the past. But on the other hand, we cannot go back in history and judge it by a standard that didn't exist at its time. Because if we do that, then first of all, I think that's someone will do that to us. And the progress that society under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, please God, is doing is growing in that direction. Um, that's a needless exercise. It is what it is. As you say, history is history. We have to read it within its own context, and we learn from those lessons for our own sake, and the children will come after us, right? And may I just give you an example of what I mean? Now, of course, you may disagree, but in the church, <clears throat> there are colorful characters. You could look at the history of the church just through the personalities, right, of 20 centuries, and you have the good, the bad, and the ugly. You have it all, right? Is that? I mean, I think it's a fair thing to say, right? And it's not the question that, we want to go back and say, well, we're going to judge that person by our standards, but we want to learn the inner truths that this person may have either lived faithfully or not faithfully, because in our own time, in a different context, we are called to live them and pass on to the next generation, perhaps something more pure, more refined, right, more authentic, with greater integrity. So is that a fair way to describe this uh, or not? Yes, but, but I would eyes? say that uh, I think for many people, many modern people, many people living today, it's not just that the context is missing. It's that they, we talk about the black legends of the church. Um, you know, there, there were some pretty awful times. In the ninth or, or I read in the 10th, 11th century, if a pope had a roughly 30% plus chance of being killed in office. So, you know, the yes. dark ages were, could be dark at times. However, take something like the Spanish Inquisition, which lasted hundreds of years. The number mm -hmm. of people executed uh, under the authority of the Spanish Inquisition uh, are fewer than the number of people who died in a single day in the Civil War, our own Civil War. The bloodiest century ever was not in the Middle Ages. The bloodiest century ever was the 20th century, it's when the mm -hmm. Soviet communism um, and, mm -hmm. uh, and Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. When you look at things like 
there's, there's actually a book that came out not so very long ago called Dominion. And it points, this guy was a, was a, uh, is a, a historian who relished classical history, the history of Greece and Rome. But the more he studied it, and he was sort of a fallen away Christian. I guess you, you could tell him a fallen away Christian. Um, the more he studied it, he thought it was very exciting. He thought it was more exciting than, <laughs> he was wrong. He thought it was more exciting than church history. <laughs> but but he, he realized that, you know, these people are very different from us. And this is one thing I think we, 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 we forget to our great peril is how Christianity changed the world. Again, before we came on, mm -hmm. on, on to the show, mm -hmm. I was talking about things mm -hmm. like mercy. Mercy is a Christian virtue. In, in mm -hmm. ancient Rome, mercy was not a virtue. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and relationships were, were dominated entirely on the basis of power. And I think when it, there's, a, there's a, uh, a great Southern writer named Andrew Nelson Lytle who has a line. He said, you know, the opposite of love is not hate. It is power. And I think one of the great oh, perilous things of our time, which you see in like critical race theory, you see in the, you know, these, this weird gender theory, um, is that it's not about love, compassion, forgiveness, tolerance, all these sort of, how dare I say it, Christian virtues. These are all about power relationships, feminism, about a power relationship. It's about who's oppressed and who's not oppressed, who should do the oppressing and who should be oppressed. And this, that sort of trajectory, that sort of social cultural trajectory, which is justified in part by an absence of accurate knowledge about history. That was all bad. Everything in the Christian era was all bad. It was all repressive. Um, this goes in a very bad direction. I mean, if, if, if we're going to have relationships based on power rather than on Christian ideals of honesty, humility, mercy, tolerance, mm -hmm. we're heading, we're heading, well, we're seeing where we're heading. We're heading in a very bad way where not only is abortion celebrated by some, but, you know, things that were just unimaginable are becoming imaginable. Mm -hmm. And it, it's just, it's a very frightening scenario. Hmm. You know, you raise another point that I was I was hoping we could talk about, and that is, um, so the church has been the single, in my opinion, greatest molder, former of Western civilization, by far and away, in its life. So, if I were to ask you, as as really as a, a professor of church history and history in general, and um, what would be some of the contributions, if I asked? not knowing any of it. So to, what are these contributions? What did the church give to Western civilization that formed it over all these centuries? How would you answer that question? Well, the answer is virtually everything. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that, and I'm going to ask you to specify. Well, I mean, including like uh, hospitals, universities, you could do like institutions that it, it created. Um, it provided order it provided a governmental order after the fall of the Roman Empire. It provided us with the idea of the separation of church and state. That was that's a, that's not a Protestant idea. That's actually it's actually the reverse of the Protestant idea. It, it was a Catholic idea, um, but it really it was molding thing. It was molding the moral sense of people. This is the deepest thing. More helping to mold and shape the moral sense of people 
in ways which, again, I think we too often take for granted. We think, oh, yeah, everybody believes in whatever you want. But we, we, we've seen how um, things that everybody believes in, we no longer all believe in. I mean, some of them are commonplaces, like the morality mm -hmm. surrounding marriage. Right? <laughs> That's no longer universally held. Um, mm -hmm. the, uh, the, you know, the, and, and certain sins are like fornication are being defined out of existence. <laughs> uh, um, so, but I think still to a large part, um, even secular people in the West, maybe in, in a weird way, especially secular people who think that liberalism, I mean, broadly defined, is sort of this universally held belief system. They're, they're doing that on the basis of Christian assumptions. If you take the Declaration of Independence, right, written by a deist, Thomas Jefferson, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They're endowed by the creator of certain unalienable rights that among these are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are not self-evident truths to anyone outside the West. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so exactly. The, the, mm -hmm. if that is the, uh, the American creed it's not really a creed because the Declaration of Independence is really mostly a list of complaints. <laughs> but, 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 the, but as far as it is creedal, its creed mm -hmm. relies upon the Catholic Church. It, it relies upon the creed of the Church. It, it relies upon mm -hmm. the catechism, the teaching of the mm -hmm. Church, for these things to mm -hmm. be self-evident truths. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, H.W., I would uh, to answer my own question before we go for the break, I think one of the lasting contributions of the church in the formation of the West, including everything you had just said, is its insistence on the notion of a common good. Yeah, true. Right? Which now is one of the great crises of our age is that there isn't any consensus on what the common good is. Right. And without that, society is on a very perilous path, right? Going true. forward. Great. Excellent. I think Steve is giving us the sign. We have to break. That's right. Yep. <laughs> it's so fascinating. I don't want to break, but uh, we're going to take a quick break and uh, be back on the other side. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. His Excellency is speaking with H.W. Crocker, executive editor of Regnery Publishing and author of Triumph, a 2,000-year history of the Catholic Church, otherwise known as an adolescent boy's view of the Catholic Church. We'll be right back. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 
or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. His Excellency is speaking with H.W. Crocker, author of Triumph, which is a fantastic read, fun, 2,000-year history of the Catholic Church. And there's a lot to get into. Oh, my gosh. So I'm going to ask you some more specific questions of your preferences, if you don't mind. Of all the ages in the church, which is your favorite? Oh, well. (laughs) Well, there are at least, uh, gosh, at least two. Um, Okay. And I, I mean... I can't help but be a, a little bit of a medievalist. I think probably every Catholic in his heart of hearts is. <laughs> because, and again, on that adolescent sort of view, like, gosh, I love knights. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I also had uh, a weakness. One of my other interests is British history, um, especially British imperial uh-huh. history. And so um, I do sort of like the the battles the of... Um, when the faith really comes under the threat of Darwinism. And so you have, and, 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 and the Anglican, the famous Anglican uh, people who, who become Catholics, like some I said earlier, like Ivan mm-hmm. Law and, uh, and Cardinal Newman. Um, in fact, I, in, in a strange way, uh, there's a famous book called Eminent Victorians by a man named Lytton Strachey. And Lytton Strachey was a skeptic, kind of a obnoxious person. I mean, I guess you could call him sort of a, an earlier different version of Christopher Hitchens, you know, kind of funny and sprightly, but kind of like obnoxious. And he wrote, his point in writing the eminent Victorians was to debunk these people who were upheld as heroes or heroines um, and to show them as kind of like these repressed, psychologically distorted people, largely because of their Christianity. And one of the people he went after was actually a boyhood hero of mine. His name was uh, General Gordon. General Gordon, he was portrayed in a movie I saw when I was quite young. It threw me <laughs> into the study of this man in quite some depth. Uh, he was played in, on the screen by Charlton Heston with a British accent. Gen- General Gordon oh. was a, uh, a Christian, he was a famous anti-slaver in the Sudan, um, but was also sort of a mercenary. He fought all over the world. He, world. he got the nickname Chinese Gordon because he put down something called the Taiping Rebellion in China. Um, but he was also famous as a Christian and um, he became a martyr in Khartoum in the Sudan, uh, killed trying to put down a, uh, a radical Islamic rebellion against Egyptian rule and the Egyptians were ruling on sort of at the behest of the British. Um, but his sort of snarky attitude to these characters and snarky attitude towards history was something I sort of adopted for triumph <laughs> because I thought this is a great weapon of the bad guys, right? The bad guys indulge in a lot of mockery and ridicule. Sarcasm. Yeah, sarcasm. But it's really ill-founded and it's much more easily directed, or not, maybe not easily, mm-hmm. but it's, it's much more suitably directed against them. And a, right. a common right. way to think of this is if you're going to satirize something, you have to satirize it from a set, an accepted set of values or virtues. 
Otherwise, you can't say mm-hmm. this one of the problems with satire today. I also write novels. <laughs> and the problem, the problem, the problem with writing satirical novels today is how do you top the news? I mean, <laughs> it's just like beyond satire. So, but, but, but you can take that approach to church history. And as I was talking about with the resurrection show, these skeptics are like, they're, they're, they're skeptical for all the wrong reasons or the skeptical of the wrong right. things. Right. Uh, right. And they accept, you know, they, they accept like blatant, I don't know if you want to call them falsehoods, but they make egregious leaps of, of alleged logic to justify mm-hmm. things that, mm-hmm. well, that, that's not true. That doesn't make sense. Right. right. Uh, you know, it's funny you should mention the Middle Ages, because I, I have, I've expounded this idea in a number of different podcasts. So now from an historian's point of view, I'm going to 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 ask you to kind of react to it. I think part of the renewal of the church in our own age is the proper recovery of the middle ages and it's absolute um and it's fascination with using beauty as a means of evangelization so for example you know, if you look at almost every Christian, more or less, except for the the, the leadership, was mostly illiterate, so they can read, right? But where did they learn the faith? They learned the faith from the the art and the glass, the stained glass, and the beauty of churches that spoke literally theologically after the afterlife, right? It's through the music and through the chant and through sights and smell, even the smells, right? It it, it they used beauty in a way that conveyed the truths of the faith were not necessarily requiring that you could read the articles of faith. And in some way, shape, or form, I am very personally fascinated with trying to do that in the 21st century because we have many people who can read but have not read. So in effect, they don't, they don't have the knowledge. But to, it's an engagement of the heart to also engage the mind in this curiosity. Does that make any that sense makes from your perspective? That makes total sense to me. Um, I mean, I'm not an intellectual snob at all. And I mm-hmm. I really don't care if someone, I mean, I won't put it this way. You can, you can get a more accurate view of history often through an imaginative view rather than you know, reading a lot of history books. Um, there was a, there's a great author huh. named, uh, he's now dead, but George MacDonald Frazier, who wrote The Hollywood History of the World, was one of his books. He was a novelist uh, for the most part. But, but for his point was all those crazy Hollywood movies of the, of the of the golden era, who were who took obvious liberties with with history. Nevertheless, in their heart of hearts, they were more accurate than a lot of you know, propagandistic historians. And I think that's actually very true. Um, and the mm. it, when it comes down to beauty, absolutely. I mean, think of something that's missing in our modern world. It's it's beauty. Mm-hmm. You can see this in in big ways. We're not building cathedrals anymore. That's like that's, that's a bad thing. Um, but also people's normal aesthetic sense. I mean, look around you. Look at John Fetterman of Pennsylvania. <laughs> look at, um, but, but, but even, I mean, in a much more dramatic way. I mean, other people have commented on this. I may do it in a, in a very kind of profane way. All right, so um, if you were a boy growing up in the, I guess, so you were an adolescent in the 70s or the 80s, oh boy, the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Aren't these girls gorgeous? <laughs> and now instead you have men prancing around in bikinis. I mean, they, this sort of, it's an affront. It is, it's, it is obviously in some ways 
an intentional affront. If you turn on, I mean, my, my television viewing is very limited, right? We watch sports still occasionally. We watch old shows, not old Westerns, but the old shows. But nevertheless, on these sort of channels, which you can tell are, their viewership must be people my age because they're always talking about Social Security and Medicare on the commercial. <laughs> but when they're not, <laughs> the commercials that are on are meant to affront people's moral sensibilities if they come from, say, you know, my age or whatnot, because they are intentionally promoting ugliness. Mm-hmm. I mean, flat out ugliness. And I mean, I think it is it is a sign of the of the depth of the, well, we see in other aspects too, like the measurements of despair, depression, anxiety, all these things are off Mm -hmm. the charts. Mm -hmm. We are living in a very Mm -hmm. inhuman age, and yet the people who are Mm -hmm. suffering the most are the people Mm -hmm. who affirm that age the most. And the Mm -hmm. people who have a different set of reference points, like faith most Mm -hmm. especially, I mean, you can see this in endless sociological data, the most well-adjusted, happiest, <laughs> contented, successfully married people are people of faith. And yet, for yeah. some reason, those are the ones most disparaged by almost everyone. It, it's, it, it would seem to me, and again, this is your perspective would be tremendous on this. Uh, another drum I keep beating is the impoverished notion of truth right? That leads to a lot of what you're talking about. And it's happened before in history. In the end, the truth, what, what is, Pontius Pilate, famous, what is, what is the truth? Well, well, that's the question of the ages. And of course, the answer was standing in front of him. He, the Lord is the truth. So how you convey the truth, how you narrate the truth, how you record the truth, how you live the truth, how you understand the truth is one of the basic questions of human life. And it would seem to me we have impoverished the notion of truth to be historical or scientific fact when the truth is is multivalent. So the beauty reveals truth. Virtue reveals truth, right? Love ultimately reveals truth. They go hand in hand. But the world just wants to reduce it to this small little, in which case, if it's only factual, you could kind of rearrange it any way you want. But that's not Christian revelation. That's not Christian life. It's not truth, right? So, I mean, speaking right. as a historian, I mean, you, right. again, you can you can you can pull fifteen uh, books about some aspect of, of history and find fifteen different viewpoints on it. <laughs> so the, the right. historians debate the truth, but moreover, when the truth becomes, I mean, the old you know, relativist line about well, it's your truth and my truth, and all this It's actually it's far worse than that now. It's far worse than that because it's not even reduced to, um, you could say, you know, an argument of facts or of, or of science. Because as we've seen, mm-hmm. once you lose this idea of truth, which we have, um, even science is not removed from it. We've, there's a lot of, you look at journalism today, and they're covering about the politicization of science. I mean, again, we see it mm-hmm. most, especially with the transgender thing, where science textbooks, people in medical school, are being asked to deny reality. They are being asked to deny that there are two definable sexes. In mathematics, you would think, oh, this is this is obviously safe. No, 
Now we're being told mathematics is racist. <laughs> I mean, once you give these things up, and people think they can give things up that aren't, don't really matter, right? Because you have your truth, I have my truth. I like this, you like that. No, they actually do matter because it filters filters down or up, however you want to put it, or sideways. But no, if, these, if you try to affirm like gay marriage, homosexual marriage, seems to me this is pretty much obviously something that doesn't work. Right. Just biologically, the parts don't fit together, right? It's a perversion. So, but you think, well, it, you know, love is love. We really don't care about that. That's fine. But no, the problem is, again, that filters down. It was, it was that alleged compromise on homosexual marriage, which led to transgender madness like five minutes later. And it has also other filter down effects where the, where the state starts intervening and starts assuming this is our new public morality and enforcing it. And I mean, the ultimate end of this is, you know, Christians going back to some version of the catacombs, or in my case, right. moving well, to Mississippi, which is like. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Let me ask you this: another personal question, changing gears a bit. Uh, of do you have a favorite? And of course, you may have more than one. So answer however you wish. Saint. Ha. Huh. Um, well, let me uh, let me put it this way. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm thinking less of like maybe personal favorites, but if you think about influential, maybe influential, yeah, yeah, no, historically that's, that's influential. Because I, I think it, it highlights an interesting yeah. point. So, the, the someone said I can't remember who now that if you if you were to abolish all church writings, save that of one author, the most important um, church philosopher writer is Saint Augustine. Well, that's arguable, mm -hmm. but that's a plus view. I think many people would say St. Thomas Aquinas. Mm -hmm. But I think what's most interesting is maybe two other things. Is we wouldn't have St. Augustine if it weren't for St. Ambrose, who helped convert St. Augustine. <laughs> um, so all saints mm -hmm. have their place. But I would also say this, and this is the, I think, maybe this gets back in a way to your, 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 your idea of beauty which is for all of the great influence of St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, popularly, demotically, democratically, the, the most popular saint, I think, is undoubtedly St. Francis. And that people are moved most not by the Summa, <laughs> right? Or the city of God. <laughs> oh my gosh, if you're moved by the Summa of God, <laughs> Lord have mercy. But they're moved by <laughs> a man like St. Francis. I mean, just holiness mm -hmm. in action, joyful holiness in action um, is the most, is something that people respond to. That doesn't mean we don't need mm -hmm. the intellectual answers. I mean, we, again, we need everybody. We need everyone doing their part. Absolutely. But... I guess in some ways, I guess this is a, 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 an advice that, look, you don't mm -hmm. need to become a scholar. I mean, to know your faith, mm -hmm. you just need to try to live it. Right. Exactly. Right. And stay in communion with others who yes. want to live it. It's not a personal journey. It's a communal journey, which is the other issue. I mean, I think, Gil, going back to the common good, if you look at the history of the church, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the, the idea that the spiritual search for God has now become a personal, private enterprise is a relatively modern notion. 
there was always a communal yes, context. Yes, absolutely. And it's, uh, to say right. the obvious, it's exacerbated by all the social media stuff. Right, exactly, exactly. So, um, who is, I was going to, this is very interesting. You don't have to answer this question. But if who is your favorite villain? <laughs> in church history <laughs> or, or the person who is among the miscreants of, of church history but has had an influence has had an historic influence has uh is captivating personality you can answer any way you want if you well, wish to. I, I will say i hope this adds to the entertainment value of the book is that um the uh, the renaissance popes so of course the bad boys in church history um but I actually sort of defend them. <laughs> yeah, oh, um, now this, this is interesting. You may be the only one, so let me um, you do well, it. Well, <laughs> one reason is the argument of beauty. I mean, these are men who gave us the Renaissance. and I mean, they are the men who gave us some of the most profound, artistic um, presentations of the faith, the most moving presentations of the faith. They were world, worldly men in part because they had to be in the political context of their time. They were fighting wars. They were commissioning great art. And for whatever their personal failings, and some of them were, were painted far worse than they actually were, I'll say that too. Um, but for all their personal failings, they, and they certainly had some. Um, and I, I know this is, I'm not saying anything new here, but they didn't, they, they never tried to change the faith. I mean, they as it, when it came to upholding um, the teaching of the church, they did not teach error, which I think is remarkable. But these it, men who in their own personal lives might have had very Machiavellian, rickety lives, they did not say, you go do the same. They did not try to lead people astray. Right. You know what the difference may be, if I may put it this way? I, I think that observation is, is, is something really to think about. You're absolutely correct. They didn't teach anything contrary to the faith. They didn't live necessarily what they taught. But in that era, very few people would have known right, that. Right. Now we live in an age where everyone knows everything about <laughs> everyone. <laughs> so again, that's how the progress of history has come, that now there are other forces at work to, to try to... Uh, encourage strongly integrity of life because now if you preach it in words and you're not living it, people say this guy's right. a fraud because they know yeah, it. Yeah, another right? aspect of this too is um, sort of paradoxical characters in history. So think of Napoleon. Right, Napoleon mm -hmm. is someone who kidnaps the Pope, <laughs> holds him hostage, yeah. and yet <laughs> Napoleon is also the man who restores the Catholic Church to France after the French Revolution. And he too, not a holy man <laughs> in, his, in his life, no. but a man who actually ended up assisting, aiding, abetting the church in returning to France. Uh, right. Or you think of World War II. Um, it was Churchill who said this was a war um, about Christian civilization. FDR said similar mm -hmm. things, that we are, we're fighting against Dark Age barbarism not Christianity, but against Christian civilization. And yet in both those cases, you had men who were sort of agnostic, Episcopalian Anglicans, but recognizing that they were fighting for Christian civilization. Yeah, it's interesting. That's an interesting image. It's how is that, uh, I'm wondering to myself, now that, and this I need to think about, uh, 
So the, like Pope Gregory and Pope Leo negotiated with the barbarians not to have Rome overthrown right. Right, by the Vandals and the Huns and all the rest. So Christianity has always been at war with those forces that want to destroy it. I've never quite understood World War II in, those, in that context, but now that you've said it, it's, it's definitely worth reflecting on. It's it's another version of the Huns. It's another version of the Vandals. Yeah, well, right? you know, Evelyn Waugh, um, a British writer, said that when, because people often forget that at one point in early on in the war, Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia are allies. They're part of the same, right? This, the, the, the Nazi Soviet pact. Um, uh, to Evelyn Waugh, this was the, he, this is his quote, the modern age in arms. So, I mean, you had blatantly atheistic communism, right, Soviet Union, and in Nazi Germany, you had a regime which was consciously striving to, in, to reinstate a pre-Christian, barbarian, <laughs> power-based rule. That's what Nazism was really Pagan about. Russia. It was an attempt to go back before Christianity. Um, to, to paganism, I mean, literally to paganism. So there was the modern age in arms. The modern age was actually dominated by Soviet Russia and this Nazi attempt to reimpose paganism. And what was standing against it was like the, you could say, to part, in large part, deracinated Christian world, but was still strong right. enough to recognize that its values were under threat and, uh, and to fight for them. Right. H.W., what do you think is the greatest misconception about the Catholic Church out in, out in the secular world? Huh. Well, there are so many. <laughs> <laughs> well, pick one. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess, well, one would be that, it's, that the church is scandal-ridden, right? I mean, that's, that also has a modern... A spin on it, which, you know, yes, well, any institution will have scandals. But again, if you look at the big picture, and I know people hate to crunch numbers and do all this sort of stuff, but mm -hmm. it is, mm -hmm. it's not a scandal. I mean, yes, scandals are to be abhorred and guilty people should be punished. But the scope of this problem, both historically and today, is hugely exaggerated. Um, just as a matter of fact, this is a matter of fact. Um, I think the other thing, maybe a, a, from a broader historical thing, is the idea that the Catholic Church um, is opposed to freedom. Because I think the ar argument should actually be the exact opposite of that. <laughs> the Catholic Church mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is a great apostle of freedom. I mean, human, human freedom in both its highest levels, but even in things like, um, if you were to contrast Catholic Europe to Protestant Europe, you have killjoy Europe versus <laughs> let the good times rule Europe. And people recognize this at the time. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I can't, I, I wish I could remember, there's a great Chesterton quote about how few things are actually prohibited <laughs> under you know, the Catholic <laughs> Church. And I think that's, that's very true. The Catholic Church is a church of human freedom. It seeks to liberate the human person for communion with God. And it's also, it is all this world being a world of sorrows is a joyful church, right? It's a church of feast days and holy days. And 
I mean, coming from a Protestant background, that was actually a little bit hard for me. <laughs> uh, right, right, right. Um, but I thank yeah. God I have a Catholic wife who helped me understand that you know life is meant to be enjoyed. <laughs> um, but I like that down here. I live in Southern Mississippi. I mean, and this is not Louisiana. This is Southern Mississippi. Mardi Gras is a big deal, <laughs> and and the, and the church has this sort of um, you know joyful spirit. And I think that is something that people need to. Uh, to re-engage with and and to wonder, okay, so <laughs> which would you rather live on? I mean, look at our our you want to call these certain ideological commissars today. They're, they're the people of the they're the skulls. I mean, all when we talk about wokedom and all this sort of things, it's it's the skulls, it's the people wave wagging their finger at you that you are being heteronormative or you are being <laughs> patriarchal or whatever it is, but they're all skulls. That is not the Catholic Church, right? The Catholic Church is both, as we talked before, tolerance, mercy, humility, forgiveness. It's also the church of love. It is the church of charity. It is the church of enjoying God's creation. That's part of what we're here for. It's the church. It's the church that's proclaiming the road to salvation. Yes. yes. And eternal life. And if that's not worth being joyful about, I'm not exactly right. sure what is, right? I agree. Very well said. Well, very well said. Thank you for sharing all your thoughts. My pleasure. <laughs> let's let's jump in and take one more break. We'll come back with a listener question, and uh, and we'll be right back. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. See you on the other side of the break. Hey. It's Matt from Restless on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Each week on Restless, we young adults restlessly seek the face of Christ in today's crazy and mixed up world. Join us each Friday at noon on 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, the Veritas app, or wherever you get your shows. Hope to see you there. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. All right, Excellency, here's a, a, a question that came in from somebody who's been watching you carefully at Mass, apparently. That's very scary. <laughs> very scary. <laughs> he, writes, he writes, Bishop Frank, I noticed that you remove your mitre during mm -hmm. some parts of the Mass and mm -hmm. wear it for others. Mm -hmm. Why is this? It, it's a simple principle. When a bishop is sitting during the celebration of Mass, the mitre is on. When he is standing the mitre is off because often he's praying or leading prayer when he's standing. The only exception is homily where a bishop has the option to wear it or not wear it. And in the last few years, I've begun to wear it when I preach. And, and is there a reason why you started doing that, Excellency? Uh, because I'm getting bolder. No, I'm <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, 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 because uh, there is a greater urgency in my mind um, in the preaching I'm offering that um, we engage the truth more more forcefully. Mm. Like in other words, in my mind, there's a great urgency that we move forward as a church. So the, the mitre, wearing the mitre is, it's like when my father used to sit up in his chair and I knew it was coming. <laughs> <laughs> so that's ultimately why I'm doing it, to draw more attention to hopefully what I can provoke in people to think through and reflect as we move forward as a oh, church. Very good. The renewal is coming. It's here. It's just a question of people, do they want to be part of it or not? And I hope everyone does want to be a part of it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. So if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. 
And we'd like to thank our sponsor, Foundations in Faith. It's a grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization that makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. H.W. Crocker, that was fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. And I echo that. Is there a website or someplace where you can send people so they can find I'm out more? I'm very low you? tech, so no, I don't have a website, but it, uh, the books are all available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and all the usual places. Great. Awesome. Well, well, thank you for sharing your time and your insights, H.W. Thank, thank you, you very much. Excellency, before we go, would you please give us your blessing? Sure. I'd be happy to. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Together we pray, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Enjoy your day, everybody. Thank Thank you. you.